Please open your Bibles to uh, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, and this morning we're, uh, we're going to focus on verses 6 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Church, hear now the very word of God. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. All of us uh, have something that we love in common. We all love better. We all love better. If there is something that you have and it's uh, something that you use and I offer you something better, you'll take it. We always will take better. And certainly, um, even the offer of better, we have learned in enough times and with enough experience of the under-delivery that sometimes Uh, what is offered as better turns out to be worse. And so over the experience of life, we've recognized that the offer of better must come with a convincing that it really is better. And then, once convinced, we will take it. Once we are convinced that whatever before us is better, we'll take it. If it's a tool that we have and I offer you a better one and display how this tool will improve your work Uh, And it's efficient, you say, I'll take the better. 
If it's a uh, more high-definition, wider-screen TV that I show you the display, and you'll say, I'll take the better. We'll go for the better once we are convinced of it. The author of this letter, he has been on an all-out mission to convince these first-century readers of better. Again and again through this letter, we have seen him present to them all these arguments for the better, namely Jesus. The the title we have given our preaching series through this letter is The Exalted Christ, because that's what the author of this letter is doing again and again. He is lifting up Jesus and then bringing arguments to convince the original readers that Jesus is better. We have seen many ways he has done this. So far in this letter, he has argued that Jesus is better than angels, that he is better than Abraham, that he is better than Moses, that Jesus is the better priest, that he is a better mediator, that he brings a better hope, that he has better promises. And this morning, the author wants to convince the readers, and therefore I believe the Holy Spirit wants to convince us, that Jesus inaugurates a better covenant. And our understanding of that and our being convinced of that, that we will take it and it will change us. That's what this text is meant to do for us this morning. It was meant to convince the original readers that the old covenant which they had grown up in was fading away because a new covenant and better covenant had arrived. A new and better covenant established by Jesus in his person and his work has come and this new and better covenant has made the old one obsolete. And therefore they should take the better. And that should change their lives. And so here's our main point this morning. The New and better covenant frees us and empowers us toward joy-filled obedience for the glory of God. This new and better covenant, it, it does things for us. It will free us, as we will see, and it will empower us, as I believe God will lead us to see, to a joy-filled obedience in our lives for God's glory. So we're going to break this down to understand this main point. First, let us be convinced uh, that the old covenant was never meant to bring perfection and completion, that there are faults in the old covenant. Turn your attention. Uh, He begins to say this in verse 7. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion for the second. So the argument simply is there, hey, there's a new covenant, a second covenant. That argues that the first one could never do what this new one is bringing to do. Verses 8 and 9, he says this, For he finds fault with them when he says, Now the author will quote the prophet Jeremiah. This quote is from Jeremiah 31, and interestingly, it is the 
longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. He captures this prophetic promise from Jeremiah, where in ancient days, long before the writing of this letter, the prophet said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the old covenant, not like that covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is reference to the covenant that God's people, whom he had graciously and miraculously delivered from slavery in ancient Egypt, right? Remember, bringing them through the, the Red Sea and into the wilderness and promising to deliver them to that promised land. He brings them to Sinai and through Moses as mediator gives them a covenant. A covenant of how they would be his people. A, a people distinct, set apart, the word holy, nation, different from the rest of the world around them. This old covenant established God's laws before his people, the precepts and the rules by which they were to be governed. It gave them the ceremonial laws and the sacrificial system on which they would relate to God and know him and live by him. This was the covenant given to these people. And Jeremiah says there will be a day where God will declare a new covenant not like that one. The author of Hebrews picks up this prophecy and lands it on the original leaders, on the original readers, so that they may be convinced of this new covenant. The old covenant was given to these people, and if you remember, God had written it on tablets of stone so that it would be set in front of the people, before them. And if you remember, even as they traveled through the wilderness, just the pattern of them traveling was to follow behind the Ark of the Covenant, which contained these tablets of stone. The covenant went before the people, and they were to follow it as God's distinct holy nation. The argument here is given because the author, he doesn't want these readers to go back to living under that old covenant. He knows that they were tempted, that they were tempted to be unsure of the new teachings that they were receiving because of the coming of Jesus because of his life, death, and resurrection. Things are now new. Things have changed. And these original readers would be tempted to be unsure of these teachings. And certainly in the midst of persecution and of trials, they would, they would consider going back to their former ways going back to the former ways of relationship with God, not trusting in this new and better covenant. So the author, he is set on convincing them not to go back, but to lay hold of the new and to live in light of the new. Now, as we hear all that, we can 
respond thinking, that sounds like a first century problem. We're 21st century Christians. That sounds like a them thing, not an us thing. What does this have to do with me? I don't really wake up on a Monday overly tempted to fall back into the old covenant given to Moses. I'm not like, man, I wish I could get into some of those ceremonial laws. I wish we could have some of that sacrificial system going. That's not really my temptation. So we need to ask the question, what does this have to do with us? And as, as I have studied God's word, I have become more and more convinced of the enduring relevance of God's word. At times, that, that's difficult to tackle, right? Because sometimes we open the Bible in the morning with our good cup of coffee, and we read it, and we go, huh? But with the help of God's Spirit and some practice and patience in it, I, I have just become more and more convinced of the enduring relevance of this word. And so... I have then set out to answer, hopefully, that question for us. What does this temptation of the first century readers to go back have to do with us? And I think it relates in the very fact that this is how this people were instructed to relate to God. Their relationship with him was bound up in this covenant in the ceremonies, in the sacrifices, in the distinctions of them as a people had to do with their relationship with God. And I think that we find temptation to go back to former ways in how we think about relating to God. In our relationship with him, I think we are often tempted to go back and define our relationship with the Lord in terms of, of outward performance. We believe that our relationship with God functionally is often based on sort of this transactional obedience. Right? We, we may kind of think things like this. We might not say it out loud, but we function in such ways where we say, okay, if, if, I, if I can kind of keep in step with the rules of the Lord, if I can kind of fall in line with the ways I think he wants me to live, then, then he will bless me. Then, you know, it will go well with me in my life, the things that I kind of want to happen. So let me, let, me, let me kind of walk in step with the Lord so I get the blessings of God. And, and if, if I fall out of step with some of those things that he has commanded me to do, then, then maybe it won't go well with me. Maybe I'll experience the curses of God. I think we can find ourselves tempted to go back to a transactional obedience in our relationship with the Lord. And now there's two problems with this way of thinking, at least two problems of this going back. One, we either end up defining the terms uh, either in moderation or in comparison or in both. So here's how this works out. We do it by moderation when we think, okay, I want some blessing from God, but I want to be humble. So I don't need like extravagant over-the-top blessing. 
I just need like comfortable life kind of blessing. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? And so in that moderation of, I don't need all the amazing blessing from God that everyone's going to look at, just some moderate blessing from the Lord. And so I can be satisfied in that moderate blessing. And therefore, all I need to do is chip in a little moderate obedience. I kind of want that, that, that mid-grade level blessing from God, right? I don't need the luxury vehicle. So I just need mid-grade level obedience, for him to bless me in that way. I'll take the rules and the precepts of the Lord where they fit into the comfort of life. I don't need any kind of radical, sacrificial, painful obedience, just the moderate kind. And that leads to analyzing then how we're doing on that transactional obedience scale by then comparing ourselves to others, right? How do I know that I'm, I'm, I'm doing enough moderate obedience? Well, I, I pick my head up and I start looking around. I go, well, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. I'm not pointing at anybody over there. <laughs> we think, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. I, I'm, I'm, kinda, I'm walking a little bit straighter path than they are, just enough so that I don't need the difficulties in my life. Or we see the circumstances of other people's lives and we think, man, they're not getting the blessing from God. They must not be chipping in enough on this transactional obedience. I think we're tempted in this way. And I believe this morning that the Lord wants to use this text to give his people a better understanding of the new covenant because i believe that a better understanding of this covenant will free us from that thinking and empower us to enjoy god and live lives for his glory and our joy so let us be convinced Oh, may the Spirit work and convince us. As our guide, this author, takes Old Testament prophetic promise from the book of Jeremiah and lands it on these readers, may it land on us this morning, to show us that God, God has always intended to give this new and better covenant. It was always in the mind and intention of God that the old covenant, it was never intended to be final and complete. That this ancient prophecy describes this coming of this new and better covenant which the author says has arrived. Which Jesus says is established in his blood. So, Three ways that we get from this Old Testament prophecy of how this covenant is not only new, but better. The first way, this new and better covenant is implanted and it is empowering. Look at verse 10. The prophecy says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. 
The old covenant administration of God's laws was set before the people on tablets, calling them to obey. The law was written on tablets of stone and put in front of the nation saying, look, walk in these ways, follow these commands. The obedience, it depended on the people to take that law and put it into their lives and into their hearts. But here, here in this new and better covenant, God's law is not written on tablets placed in front of his people, but by the hand of God and the power of the Spirit, it is written on their hearts. It no longer depends on the people to take it and bring it into their lives. God himself does it. He takes his law and he puts it into their minds and writes it on their hearts. Believer, you who have put all your hope and trust in Jesus as your Savior, as your substitute for all of your sin, God, by his Spirit, has taken his law and he has put it in your heart. What does this do? See, the old covenant, it was unable to impart righteousness. It was unable to change hearts. It was not able to empower the people to bear fruit. It only had the power to reveal and to condemn. But the new covenant, it fills and empowers. This is what the Bible calls the new birth or regeneration, the experience of the sinner at the moment of repentance and receiving faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior. Ezekiel prophesied of this. In Ezekiel 36, he said, looking out of God, it says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I, the Lord speaking, I will put it within you I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the prophetic promise of the work of the spirit in the new birth for the Christian believer that God himself will put his spirit in them causing them to walk in his ways. One of the rabbis, Nicodemus, wanted to understand more from Jesus, came to him in the middle of the night and asked him about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told Nicodemus these words in John chapter 3. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. It is necessary for God to take the heart of a sinner and to, by the power of the Spirit, make it born again, giving him new eyes to see the kingdom of God. 
There's no other way. In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he's talking about this change that has happened in them, and he uses these words. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened by the Spirit. Listen, the sinner who is separated from God because of their sin, away from fellowship with him, not having a relationship with him because they have not received the gospel by faith. They are blind and in darkness. They cannot see the beauty and wonder of the kingdom of God. They need God by his spirit to wake them up. Open their eyes, give them a new heart, and enlighten them, and then they will see the kingdom of God. This is such a wonder of God's grace that the Old Testament can't contain it, and the prophets break out saying, it's coming, there will be a day. And so the author of our text wants to convince his readers of better, and he tells them, listen, This has been coming, prophesied from days of old that the Lord will take his law and put it in your hearts and open your eyes that that you will walk in his ways. The new covenant is better because it depends on God's work to transform people into his people, causing them to be made new. This this transformed heart and mind, it changes us. Listen, Christianity is not about following rules. It is about living out a transformed life. That's like any other religion. There's nothing like that. We are transformed by the power of the Spirit. And we are not transformed so that we can just walk and grit it out in the rules of God. Our hearts are changed so that we have new desires, new love, new affection. Listen to these words from the Puritan pastor Thomas Chalmers talking about how we now can walk in the rules of God. He says this, In a word, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object, he's saying love for the world there, is to fasten it in positive love to another, then it's not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter, that the old things are to be done away with and all things are to become new. And the only way to dispose of it, of the old affection, is by the expulsive power of a new one. He's saying that when you were in love with the world, and the new birth happened in your heart, Christian, God implanted it in your heart and gave you an exploding power to no longer love the world because Jesus is better. 
because it gets replaced with a more satisfying affection, a greater love, a greater desire. You see, the things of the world are, are worthless now, but not because I just told you how bad they are, because he showed you how beautiful he is. That's what God has done in your heart, Christian. Have you experienced that reality? Do you know that that doesn't just change the day that this new birth happened, but it changes your every day? This expulsive power of a new affection is the living out of the transformed life. And it's what this new covenant has brought. It is better. It is better. This is what the Apostle John is talking about in his letter when he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Christian, has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commands are not burdensome. He wraps up love for God and obedience to him all together because we have new affections, new desires, God himself. And so we want to walk in obedience, not begrudgingly. It's not burdensome. It's deepening relationship with this great king. So this heart overflows because it is now transformed, and it brings us, the second thing of this new covenant, into intimate relationship with God, verses 10 and 11. Second part of verse 10, he says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. The new covenant established through the blood of Christ, written on the hearts of the people who are into it, brings an intimate and personal knowledge of God. Through the new birth, we know him. And this knowing of the Lord, it's not about this comprehensive understanding of the attributes of God and his nature. It's this relational love that we are brought into through the new covenant. He is our God believer. And we are his people. This relational love knowing of God, it, it propels us to pursue a fuller and deeper knowing of God. I'm dating my wife. I'm getting to know her, growing in my affections for her, and wanting to learn more about her and, and realizing I'm loving her more and more. And then I know her and I marry her and then I don't just go, now I know you. I really don't need to know anything else. No. My knowing her puts this desire on fire to know her more and more. And so our marriage is about pursuing deeper relationship into one another. And so it is with this intimate relationship with God. Listen, if you had a treasure 
and you wanted to share it with those who you love and who you know intimately. You want to, to give of this great treasure. God himself is the treasure. And his great love for us overflows in his desire to share treasure with us. That's himself. He wants us to know him more, to experience him more, to understand him more. Because in knowing God more fully and more deeply, we get more of the treasure that is God himself. This book is a treasure. Dig more and more and find satisfying joy for your soul in knowing God. And as we know him more and more, it, it makes us understand the beauty of who he is. This is what J.I. Packer, in his excellent book, Knowing God, says about this. What makes life worthwhile? That gets your attention. Is having a big enough objective something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this, the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? There's nothing, nothing more worth our pursuit in life than more intimate knowing of God. And this new covenant inaugurates that in our lives. And it will change the way we understand all of life. The third thing that this new covenant brings, it brings superior forgiveness. Verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You remember our temptation that we may have to fall back into a life of transactional obedience with God? There is only one transactional obedience that happens in the new covenant. And that is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This Savior King has done everything necessary to satisfy the holy wrath of God in his dying in the place of sinners, in bearing all of their sin after a life of perfect obedience on behalf of them and receiving the full punishment that all of our sin deserves, therefore satisfying the wrath of God and removing the condemnation that our sin is due. The transactional work is done. In the words, it is finished. And therefore, God can declare in the new covenant that he will be merciful toward our iniquities. That is good news. That is sweet news for the soul that God would be merciful to our iniquities. And, and then he says, I will forget. 
I will remember their sins no more. And we have to think, how, how can an all-knowing God forget? How can that be? And I, and I guess there, there is a sense in his divine omnipotence where it is impossible for God to forget. But the point that God is making here is not his inability to remember something. It's about the divine decision to remember no more. His divine decision to remember no more. This is the heart of the new covenant and why it is unbelievably better. He has implanted and empowered and brought us into intimate relationship. And all of that comes through the person and work of Christ on the cross. The full scope of merciful forgiveness of God has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Secured in what he has done for us. For those who have repented of their sins, confessed with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they have received the merciful forgiveness from the Lord in which his divine decision is to remember their sins no more. All your failures this past week. All the ways you have fallen short. All the thoughts that have entered your mind in which if we put on the screen you would be utterly embarrassed. Because of Christ, the Father remembers them no more. Not one. He has decided that he will never again allow the condemning thought of your sin enter his mind. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. So, when you're tempted to fall back into thinking that your relationship with the Lord depends on some sort of transactional back and forth, remember this reality and this covenant. He doesn't look at you like that anymore. He doesn't understand you like that anymore. You are in Jesus Christ. Everything has changed. You have a new heart, an intimate relationship, and full forgiveness of your sins. And so this, this new and better covenant, it it frees us and it empowers us toward joy-filled obedience for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we ask that you would Open the eyes of our hearts to see this covenant and its wonder for us in our lives to, to live lives that are transformed by your work, by what you have done. Help us to be people that reflect the beauty and worth that you have given us through the gospel message, to live 
transformed lives for your glory, for your worth, for your beauty. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.